Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 7, 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Buckeye, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. We were uh, getting a little intense over here with our worship, if you didn't see that balloon. I was checking the balcony for snipers. I didn't know what was going on there. For... Uh, well, good morning. Uh, my name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it is a glorious morning. We have uh, five people getting baptized in the second service this week, and so we're pretty excited about that. Yep. Well, if you are just joining us, we are currently studying the Old Testament book of Ezra. This is a book that has been neglected by Christians and the church for far too long, and our churches and our society has suffered the consequences. Our culture... American culture, which was founded upon Christian values, thought that they could reject the God of the Bible and then keep the blessings that he bestows upon his people. We wanted to reject the God who gives freedom, morality, sanity, reality, again, and order. And what we have left is tyranny, immorality, insanity, fantasy, and chaos. This week, we heard a Supreme Court nominee say that she is unable to define the word woman, even though she had used it 14 times previously in her testimony. We saw a biological male chosen as one of the top women of the year, and another biological male win the NCAA swimming championships. What in the world is going on? We have rejected the God of reality and we are living in insanity. Our society, if it doesn't stop and repent and return, it will crumble like Rome did 1700 years ago. But my point this morning isn't to scare you. I want to remind us Jerusalem crumbled in a similar way 2500 years ago. When you reject God as the center of your life and civilization, you invite the inevitable 
chaos into it. That's what happened when Babylon invaded and conquered Israel and Jerusalem. And the book of Ezra is, in one sense, it's an instruction manual on how to get it back. How to bring reformation to a society. How to bring renewal to a society that has crumbled. This book is teaching us, and teaching anyone who reads it, how to rebuild in the midst of cultural ruins. I believe our calling is very much the same today. That we are called to rebuild our families with God at the center, rebuild our church with God at the center, and rebuild our cities with God at the center, all for his glory. And if God chooses to give us success at these endeavors, and others like us, it's going to take a whole lot more people than just us, just maybe we can see our republic restored. Today's sermon is going to be unusually practical. I want to answer the question, the questions, how are we supposed to prepare ourselves to rebuild a society? What does God want me to do? What does God want each one of us to do? I'm just an engineer. I'm just a factory worker. I'm just an attorney. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just whatever. What is, how can I contribute to the reformation of society. I also want to specifically address our young people today. It seems like this, the wisdom found in the pages of Scripture, though my, on my age and older, this is just common knowledge, it seems like the wisdom of the ages has been kind of uh, forgotten. And our young people are just not hearing things that we would think is our common sense. And so we're going to get some real common sense advice this morning that's meant to help young people grow up and do something significant with their lives. Do you want to do something great for God? Do you want to go out into the world and bring good into the world to restore something, to reform something for the glory of God. Well, today I'm going to show you from God's word some necessary steps to make that a possibility. All right, I'm gonna pray. Let's get after it this morning. Father, we thank you for your spirit that you promise to be here when your people gather and they lift up your name and they turn from your sin. We thank you for being the holy God that calls sinners in to worship to renew us, to restore us to what we would have been before the fall, to be able to worship you rightly through Jesus. So we humbly come before you and we ask you to teach us. We ask that you would speak to us. We ask that your life would give us, or your word would give us life, that you would renew and restore our soul, grant us repentance, grant us restoration. Father, I am a sinful man, just like everyone else here, and so I ask that you would Hide me behind your word that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords that it would be all of you and none of me. I ask, Lord Jesus, that um, you would help your people hear your voice. And anything I say that's off, that's wrong, that's foolish, that's from me. And anything that is good, upbuilding, and true, that is, of course, from you. And so I ask that your people would be able to tell the difference this morning and that you would build a church here um, that would make an impact in our city. Lord Jesus, um, Help us be faithful until you come and you bring a world without end. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. All right, well, if you could open up your Bibles to Ezra chapter seven. A little interesting here. 
We are seven chapters into our study of the book that bears Ezra's name. And yet today is the first time we are going to be introduced to the man Ezra. I don't know if you've picked that up so far. We've had Zerubbabel. We've had a lot of exiles. We've had no Ezra. All right, so here we are 20 years later and Ezra finally shows up. Now, over the next few months, we are going to learn a whole lot more about Ezra. But today, in the first 10 verses of chapter 7, we're going to learn a few really important things about the man, Ezra. So the first thing we want to say, ask is, who is Ezra? Who is this guy? All right, let's read our first six verses. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, now I think Artaxerxes is another, is a throne name for Darius. This is the same king. We just left off in the sixth year of Darius. Now we're in the seventh year of, of Darius. It says it later on, we're in, in the seventh year here. I think it's Darius. I think it's literally right, uh, the next season after. Some scholars believe this is a 56-year gap. I, I don't buy it. Let's keep reading. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra... The son of Sariah, I can't read this as good as Katie did. Son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Hiatub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of son of son of Abishua, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. Okay, the first thing we want to see here and that we are meant to notice, this might not be significant to us, but Aaron, or Ezra is a priest. Ezra is a priest back in Babylonia. The importance of this cannot be overstated. Back in the day, you could not just choose to be a priest. It wasn't like it is today that if a person feels called to go into the ministry that you could go to seminary or you could do a church planting residency and you could get ordained by your elders and your pastors in some denomination and then you could become a pastor. It wasn't so in Ezra's day. No, to be a priest, you had to be from a certain clan, a certain family. You had to be a Levite from the house of Aaron. Aaron, if you remember, was the brother of Moses. He was the very first high priest of Israel. He was meant to stand between God and his people as a mediator. Okay? So when Ezra here is saying that he's, and he doesn't, this isn't all of, he, he skips some people in his genealogy. They love to do that. They're just showing the important people in his family. And he's doing that as a way of bringing his credentials with him. As a way of stating, and just say, stating his importance. Okay, this was a highly qualified man. He was, a, he was in the line of Aaron, the high priest. Okay, that's the first thing we need to know about Ezra. The second thing we need to know, let's keep reading in verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord of his God was upon him. Ezra, the second thing we need to know about Ezra, Ezra was both a scribe, and as we're going to find out a whole lot more later, he was also a political reformer. He was a political reformer. Now, a scribe 
is unique here. A scribe is a competent scholar. The text said specifically here, he was, quote, skilled in the law of Moses. He understood the Old Testament, what had been given so far. He was a scholar of the highest order, but, he, but the scribe was also a political position. We will see later on that it's almost like a secretary of state. The king saw Ezra as a man who could both represent Babylonia and could represent the Jewish nation. And he was a good go-between. He was a good mediator between them. He knew the laws of Babylonia. He knew the laws of Israel. And therefore, and he was competent in the scholars. Therefore, he would be a good person to take these, this group of exiles back. They'd already been there for 20 years, but take another group back, the second wave back. And then he could set up a government there. He could set up some rulers there. And you're going to see later on, he's going to start appointing civil magistrates. Okay. So he was kind of like an ambassador, you could say, or, or a secretary of state. Old Testament scholar uh, F.C. Fensham says, quote of Ezra, he was a professional of the highest order. Okay, he was a professional of the highest order. Now the third thing we need to see, and we see it twice in these first 10 verses, is that Ezra was an anointed man of God. The way the Old Testament text here speaks of it, says this, the hand of his God was with him. The hand of his God was upon him. We will see this refrain repeated many times before we finish studying this book. Ezra and Nehemiah are all about what people can do who are devoted to God, who are focused in their intensity, and they're good at their job, and the hand of God is upon them. The blessings of God is upon them. They can accomplish some great things. So Ezra is ultimately successful and makes this huge impact because God is with him. And again, I don't, we can't overstate that fact, okay? Now, in one sense, isn't this what you want in your life? Isn't this the type of impact, the type of influence, the type of success that you want into your life? Like, like the king calls you in, and I need some advice here, right? And then you have the favor of God on you, you have the hand of God on your back. Don't you want the hand of the Lord, your God, to be upon you? Now, we might look at this story and say, well, man, I want this type of success. I want this type of influence. I want to be a cultural reformer of the highest order like Ezra. And we might assume that all we need is the blessing. That all we need is the anointing. That all we need is for God's hand to be upon us. So what should we do? I don't know. I'm just going to sit at home and pray about it. Well, that's not how God works. God can use anyone. He did speak through Balaam's donkey, if you remember, in the Old Testament. However, that is not his normal mode of operations, right? You want to hear from the Lord? You don't go to a, you know, donkey farmer, all right? Just waiting on the Lord. He did it once. He could do it again. No. To speak frankly, and this is, young people, I want you to listen up here. God 
rarely lifts up lazy people. God rarely puts his hand of blessing on the slothful. Proverbs 12, 24 says it like this. The hand of the diligent will rule, while the slothful will be put to forced labor. Lazy people typically will work for more diligent workers. If you want to be successful, if you want to be used by God to make an impact in your generation, you have to learn this principle. Here's how God says it in another Proverbs, Proverbs 22, 29, quote, do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. If you want the hand of God to be upon you in your work, you are going to have to be diligent, to be hard worker, hardworking, and to be skillful in that work. The text, verse 6, says that Ezra was skilled, quote, skilled in the law of Moses. God was not anointing some nobody in the backwoods of Babylonia who were just sitting at home, playing ancient video games with some rocks, right? Just waiting for the Lord to speak to him. Tell me what my plan is in life. Tell me what I should do. No, he was skillful. That means he was a competent scholar of the scriptures. Well, how do you get skill? How did he become skillful? The text tells us in verse 10, let's go there now. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here we're going to see four basic principles, four aspects to becoming skillful. Now listen, in any vocation. And then we're going to learn one principle that has defined all of our work of cultural reformation. First, let's look at the first four principles to become skillful. And listen, young People, listen up here. If you want to become skillful, if you want to become great at something, there is no other way than what we're going to see right here. Now, yes, a few people get lucky, okay? A few people get lucky and they can bypass these, but they are few and far between, all right? So this, we're going to look at four principles at being great at anything, and we're really going to get them all from this, from this verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of Lord. The first principle that we have to do, if we want to be great at something, we want to become an expert and skillful at anything, whether it be carpentry or baking a cake, the first thing we have to do is set our heart to it. What does that mean? That means it's, it, we must be devoted Right? We must make a conscious decision. This is what I want to do. I'm going to be committed to this thing. It's something different than when you're watching the Olympics and you see something amazing and you go, man, I want to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. A commitment is, man, I want to do that and I'm committed to that and tomorrow morning I'm going to wake up and my schedule will be different because of it. We must make it up in our mind 
to put our heart into it, to be devoted to it, to put our whole soul into something, our weight of our life, put our weight into something. Now listen, no one becomes an expert in something by accident. You must make it up in your mind to focus on something. And by, the, think about focusing, your, your camera, right? When you focus on something, it puts other things, it makes other things blurry. That's what you have to do with your life. If you want to become skillful in something, you have to focus on it and other things get blurry, right? You have to, you know, ignore some things in order to focus on something because we only have so much focus and so much time and so much willpower. And this is an important principle. As long as it's a good thing, okay? As long as it's something of quality, something of substance, something that God blesses in his word, it doesn't really matter what it is. You can choose, here's the one way the scripture says it, whatever your right hand finds to do, do it with all your might, right? So, as we grow up, our priorities will change. We will mature. Our tastes will change. Our careers will change. We will shift focus at times in our life, but our successes, if we've learned how to focus in one area, that ability will transfer over to whatever it is you're going to pursue in the next arena of, of life. In my life, the first thing that I think I focused on, I think I spent the first like 14 years just focused on being a moron. But after that, focusing on making people laugh is probably what I focused on the first 14 years. But then when I found wrestling and I found something else I could throw myself into and I realized this required a lot of self-discipline. This required a lot of focus, a lot of intensity, a lot of passion, a lot of weightlifting, a lot of practice, a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice of not going to different things and not, not going to prom and going to different re wrestling camps because I was focused on that thing. Well, that focus and that intensity and that devotion carried over into other areas of my life. When I we wanted to become a carpenter and I start, then I started, I learned how to build homes and I started building homes and I wanted to be really good at it. And then, you know, when carpentry became home building and then, and then, it, then finally I decided to go back to school and go to college and I, I found I could focus on that at really easy. School was pretty easy for me and I focused on that. And then when it came pastoral ministry, I could focus on that. And then when it came to church planting, all, everything I learned from wrestling has carried over into church planting. Everything I've learned from home building has carried over into what I'm doing now, even as a, as, a, as a father. Your successes in one area of life will carry over to other areas. The devotion you put into your sport or into your studies, that devotion will often transfer into other categories of your life as you mature, and it will make you a more well-rounded leader. An early career in sales might prepare you for a future career in management or in launching a business or in coaching. Your devotion to your craft will carry over into future endeavors if it was something of substance. Okay? Level 162 on Fortnite might not transfer into anything else. I'm just saying. All right? That might not be a high level. I really don't know because I don't play. All right. <clears throat> so it's, here's, the, here's what my point here. It's not that important. Like 
we, we get all, if you're in high school, you kind of get, start getting stressed out. What's my career going to be? What's my field going to be? What's my major in college going to be? It's really not that important to figure that out. You will figure it out as you go. The point is to choose something and focus on it. Be devoted to it. It's that you make a choice and you devote yourself to it for an extended period of time. And Ezra did that, right? Ezra, Ezra, he knew he was a priest. It was in his family line. This is what I'm going to do. And so guess what the decision he, he made? I'm going to be the best priest and scribe in Babylonia. I'm going to be top of my class. I'm going to focus on the scriptures and study them and set myself to this work. Ezra did that. Number two, the next step is after you make the decision and after you set your heart, look at verse 10, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Now let me just say, pause. This is a decision. I've set my heart this is not, I'm going to wake up in the morning and if I feel like it, I'm going to do it. I, if I feel like I'm going to read, I'm going to read. If I feel like I need to meet with the Lord, I'm going to meet with the Lord. If I feel like I need to pray, I'm going to pray. No, he set his heart to it. This is what I want to do. Think of it like this. This is who I want to become. I want to be a competent scholar. I want to be top of my class. Therefore, what do I have to do? I have to get up and do it no matter how I feel. That's exactly what he does. Look at verse 10. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. Now this is interesting. Ezra was not just an egghead. Ezra was not the type of scholar that wants to know all the arguments and all the ins and outs and all the jots and tittles of the Old Testament, but actually didn't. He just wanted to argue about it and wanted to talk about it. He wanted to philosophize about it. He wanted to be a, the smartest guy in the room. No, Ezra wanted to be a doer of the word, like James talks about. Don't be hearers only, be a doer of the word. He wanted to be a man who didn't just talk about it, didn't know about it, but he actually was about it. He actually wanted to do it. And so he set his heart to know it and to study it, but he also, he got after it. <laughs> he did it. That's the second point. We must do it. Now it's been kind of codified in popular books today, that if you want to become an expert at something, you want to get really good at something, you must put 10,000 hours of work into that thing, whatever it is. Whether it's a single leg takedown, whether it's selling stocks or buying houses, whatever it is, if you want to be great at it, here's the key. Put 10,000 hours into it. There is no shortcut to becoming skillful. Now, we see this from Ezra because Ezra had spent his whole life up until this moment studying in obscurity in Babylon. Think about it. 20 years earlier, all the leaders of the day went back to Jerusalem. Ezra didn't go. Why? We don't know for sure why he stayed back, but it's highly likely he wasn't done with his studies. He wasn't competent in the scriptures yet. He wasn't ready. He was still in training. He hadn't put his 10,000 hours in. And so he stays for 20,000, 20, 20 more years to master his craft. 
he was back home studying hard. He was working hard. He was earning his stripes as a scribe and he wasn't ready. He might have had a vision burning in his heart. He might have wanted to change the world. He, want, he might have want, wanted to be the next great high priest. He might have desired that, but he wasn't ready yet. He needed to be developed. He needed preparation. Same is true for us. If we make a decision, we must set our heart towards that thing, but then we have to get up and get after it. We have to put it in our schedule. We have to make time for it. We have to do it over and over and over and go through the years of failures and the years of not being good at something. Public speaking is one of the hardest things to get good at. And people say, basically for preachers, you have to preach a hundred terrible sermons in order to get decent. That's hard to do, to get up and not be very good a hundred times, right? Over and over and over, right? Swing and a miss. Swing and a, I think I hit a foul ball that time. I made contact. We're getting better. We're getting better. It's hard to put in that 10,000 hours of something, right? But you've got to be willing to push through that. And do it over and over and over and over again. Now, the third step we see here from Ezra, it says, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Third step here, and it's interesting, we see is, if you really want to master something, you've got to share it with others. You need to learn to teach others how you do it. Now, this is a lot harder than most of us think it is. I have spent now, I have been preaching for over 20 years, and I have spent well over 10,000 hours studying and preaching. I've spent over 10,000 hours wrestling and doing, and doing that as well. And in all of that time, here's what happens. You learn, you get better at it, but you learn to do things intuitively. You, you learn to do things instinctually. Like, I don't have to think about it anymore. I just do it. When I show up on Monday morning, and I have a little ritual that I do. I turn my music on that has no lyrics, and I light a, one of my man-smelling candles, and usually some bourbon flavored or something like that, leather and bourbon. That's the only two flavors I think I like. I smell it. I, I get it going on. I get it. I get my cup of coffee. I get in front of my computer with the Word of God, and immediately, no matter how chaotic my morning was and how tired I am, my brain goes into focus mode. That I've, my brain just, and then I can just start writing and I can, I, I start writing a sermon. I don't even have to think about it very much anymore. Now, it, the, the weird thing is, is when people come up to me and they ask me about my sermons or how did I come up with my illustrations or how did I come up with this, you know, or even if you translate it into wrestling because I still do jujitsu, how did you, why did you do what you just did right there? I usually say, did what? What do you mean? I just did what you're supposed to do. Like, in my mind, that's how I say it. Like, what else would I do? I, I did that. I, don't see, I can't see it any other way. Now, last year, a professional coach told me that I need to learn to explain and to teach others to do what I do intuitively. And it was 
probably the hardest assignment I have ever been given. Why did you do that? What do you mean? Isn't that what you would do? No. Well, why do you do it wrong? Right? <laughs> it's just like, you, it's so hard to go back into your brain and figure out where does that come from? Why do I do it that way? Why do I say it right there? Why did I make that transition? Why did I do that? Most of the time, I don't know how I, why I did that and how I did that. The truth is, see, we continue to learn as we try to teach what we do to others, right? In any lesson, you know this as if you're a mom and you're at home and you're trying to teach your teenage daughter how to do laundry or how to do the dishes, the, fir the first thing you want to say is just load the dishwasher. What do you mean? Just load it. You don't realize you've actually learned how to do that. And there's actually a right way to do that. That's more effective. You can't just throw them all on top of each other. Why won't it shut? Right? So we have to pull back and go, oh yeah. We're not born knowing how to load the dishwasher. Let's back this thing up a little bit and let's teach it to our kids. Teach, us, teach them how to do it. This is kind of the final stage of learning that coaching someone else, teaching someone else actually makes us better students, it makes us better teachers, it makes us better coaches. If you really want to master something, if you really want to get skillful in something, start teaching others. Now, these three steps are necessary steps, okay? You've got to be competent at whatever your craft is in order to, to prepare yourself for the fourth. And the fourth is when an opportunity arises for which you believe you could make a significant impact, courage will always be a necessity. Look at verse six again. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. So we learned how he got that skill, right? He got that skill by setting his heart to it, by practicing it, and by teaching others. That the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and look at this, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. Ezra petitioned the king. That takes courage. We're going to see it later in Nehemiah. Nehemiah does the same thing. To go into the presence of the king unsummoned, you could risk your own death. At this moment, Ezra, realize, Ezra realizes, I've trained for this moment. I've become this type of man. My peers see me as competent, as a scholar and as a scribe. I believe now is my opportunity. Now is the time I can step into this vacuum of leadership that's going on back in Jerusalem. I can step into this vacuum and I can solve a problem for the king. Now, if he steps into this and he's a moron, the king's going to just cut his head off, right? The king's going to immediately dismiss him. The king, he has the king's ear because he's so good at what he does. That's why. And the favor of God was upon him. So Ezra here petitions the king. He asks the king for an opportunity to now, now that the temple is built, 
he can now return and rebuild the community. That took courage. And he does it. He makes, and then it takes even more courage. Keep reading. Verse 7. And there, and, and there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. See, the seventh year. The king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was upon him. Ezra, it took courage to go into the presence of the king and say, I think I can solve a problem here. Listen to me. Here's my, here's my advice. The king says, yes, you have my blessing. Then Ezra rallies a bunch of other people and he takes them on this courageous adventure. Now this is a 900 mile trip in the middle of the desert in the middle of summer, right? This is an arduous trek. And he brings all these people from Jerusalem to Babylon, takes four months to get there. Courage is a necessity. And it's the same thing for any of us. You can get all the training in the world. You can become an expert at whatever you want to become an expert, but there will become a time and a day where an opportunity will arise. And if you don't have courage to step into it, to risk failure, to risk looking foolish, you won't capitalize on it. All of Ezra's studies, all of his preparation had prepared him for this moment. But he still needed the necessary courage to step into the opportunity that God had opened for him. This didn't just fall out of the sky into his lap. He was not untrained and unlearned. And then the king went and sought him out and said, the Lord has a word. You're supposed to study the next 20 years and then go back to Jerusalem. No, he had to make his mind up. He had to do the work. He had to teach. He had to train. He had to step into the opportunity that God had opened for him. He had to work for it. He had to master his craft. And then he had to petition the king and step out of his comfort zone and into the great work that God had called him into. Now listen, this is what faithfulness looks like to God in the midst of a pagan culture. And this is the diligent, this is the skillful that God likes to lift up or God likes to bless. God likes to put his hand upon. You see this all through the Old Testament. David was a skillful warrior before he ever faced Goliath. He had killed lions and he had killed bears with his bare hands, right? He was a competent musician before he was king. He got called to be the king's private musician because he was so good at his craft. See, David was a skillful person that God blessed. Ezra is the same. God's hand blesses Ezra. Now think of it like this. Two men are lost at sea in a tiny boat. A few scraps of lumber laying around, let's just say. One, both of them pray to God. God save me, God bless me, God help me. One of them takes the scraps in the boat and builds a sail. God does not love one more than the other. 
One of them just knows how God made the world to work and God chooses to bless the wise worker, right? God might have sent the same wind to both of them, but only the one who built the sail is actually gonna catch the breeze that God sent, catch the blessing that God sent for them. The same is true for us. God blesses the diligent. God blesses those who work hard and focus and become great at their craft. And if we want to make an impact in our society, we have to focus like that on whatever it is that God's called us. Whatever our industry is, whatever our career is, whatever it is God has put before us, we have to do these things. Set our heart, put the 10,000 hours training in, teach others to do it, and ask for God's hand. Ask for God to bless it. Now here's the last principle for cultural reformation that every single one of us, no matter what area we choose in our life, we must adhere to if we're going to see revival and reformation in our city. And it's again from verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. All of us, we, we, we can't just put the 10,000 hours in to being a craftsman, put the 10,000 hours in being a teacher or being a doctor. We must also, because we are Christians, we must put that 10,000 hours into our own study of the scriptures. You can learn just by the way of the world and just by common grace how to be a great carpenter without, really read, without reading the Bible. But you don't know how to use your skills as a carpenter for the glory of God without studying the scriptures. You must study the scriptures. You can learn to be a great physician by just going to medical school. You can't learn how to be a good Christian physician without studying the scriptures. Every single person in this room, if you claim Christ as your king, you must become a competent scholar of the scriptures. Now, we might not have to get all the way up to scholar. You don't have to be an expert. But you need to know what this Bible teaches from cover to cover. You need to read this Bible consistently every day, often. You need to go through it many times in your lifetime. You need to know it. You need to know the story. You need to know what it teaches about your specific area of expertise. And we must know it. We must do it when we learn it. And we must teach it to others. What we do in missional community. Do in our daily life. Now it's interesting because this is the same thing that Jesus told his disciples before he left them to return to heaven. He said in Matthew 28, Jesus came to them and said, Quote, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. God has, Jesus has all authority on the earth and in heaven. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Listen, teaching them to observe, teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's promising his blessing. Do you see all three of these things? You, we must know the scriptures. We must do the scriptures. We must teach the nations to obey the scriptures. And as we do that, his hand of blessing is promised to be with us. The Holy Spirit is promised to be with us. 
We must be unashamedly teaching that Jesus Christ rules the kingdoms of men. And if we want reformation in our city, our people need to submit themselves to his lordship. In every area of life, God's word must be read, studied, believed, and taught as it applies to every sphere of life. If we're going to have reformation, there is no other way. There is no returning to the good old days of our society if we don't return to the foundation that made those good old days. And that is they were the word of God. Now, all of this work of cultural reformation that I'm talking about presupposes one thing. That you have become a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, we will never reform a city. Pause. When I just said, many of us conservatives are very guilty of this. They want to, they don't even know what they're conserving. They hope to go back to the 1950s. To go back to the 1950s is basically, if you take a bad movie and you rewind it halfway and then you push play again and you think the ending's gonna change. The ending's not gonna change because the problem happened in our society much earlier, much earlier when we rejected God as king, when we rejected the scriptures as infallible as the foundation for our society. Right around the time, probably, that Darwin wrote The Origin of the Species. That's probably the, the moment in time where our society began to go off rails. So there is no going back to the 1950s unless we go back way farther than that and once again say, nope, you know what? Jesus Christ is king and everyone needs to bow their knee to him. And the word of God teaches us how to build a good society. So what this presupposes is that people bow to Jesus, that people get reformed themselves, that people get their old hearts of stone that wants to rule themselves with their own autonomy and get renewed and get born again, as Jesus says. Our hearts must first be converted. So how does that happen? Like we can't fix society unless people get saved. That's what we're saying. Unless people's hearts get renewed. Jesus gives freedom, but in order to get that freedom, I must be set free from my slavery to sin. How does that happen? Well, our hearts are converted when we hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. What is that good news? This is interesting. I said very few people get successful, become successful without employing Ezra's strategy here. Jesus was no different. Jesus, the one and only Son of God, one with the Father, one with the Spirit, existed before he was born, moved into the womb of Mary, became one of us, born of the Virgin Mary, put on human flesh. Listen, he was the true and better Ezra. Jesus was the, capital T, capital F, 
Faithful, capital H, high, capital P, priest. Jesus was the faithful high priest, Hebrews tells us. He was the high priest that all the high priests pointed to. He was the only one who was sinless in himself, who could walk into the holies of holies without judgment. Jesus did all of the things that make a person successful, like Ezra mentions here. His heart was fully set on the word of God, on doing everything that God had anointed him to accomplish. Then guess what? He made the decision to do it. Then he did it. He lived a life that was perfect. He never sinned once. He obeyed the law perfectly. Jesus spent 30 years living as a faithful student of the word. You could call him a scholar. And as a blue collar I don't know if his tunic was blue, but you know you get what I mean. Blue-collar carpenter. He was competent in the scriptures. He was a competent carpenter. Lived this 30 years kind of in obscurity. He put his time in to become great. Then he became the greatest teacher the world has ever known. 2,000 years later, the greatest minds on earth are still brought to wonder and worship at his words. Then, when the opportunity arose and his moment to shine finally came, Jesus had the tenacity and the courage to step into it and fulfill his work. However, here's the great difference between Ezra and Jesus. Jesus was completely faithful. And yet in his greatest moment, when his greatness brought him before a ruler, when his greatness brought him before a king, he was condemned and crucified for it. See, when a king recognized the greatness of Ezra, come on in, oh yeah, go out, you'll get what you want, do it, yes, do that. When Jesus is, rec- his, when he was recognized for his greatness, they say you're a king, are you really a king? Do you ask me that by yourself? Jesus is utterly rejected. Jesus is condemned and beaten within an inch of his life and then crucified naked for it. Jesus. See, where Ezra felt the kind hand of God on him, Jesus felt the hand of God come down on him in judgment. Why? 1 Peter 3 tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus took our sin on himself and took it into the presence of God and God dealt, God dealt a death blow to our sin there. 
that Jesus died in our place to reconcile us with God, to bring sinful people like us into the presence of God, and then to offer us, sinful people, unrighteous people, his righteousness by a sheer gift of grace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. See, how does God change a heart? You recognize what Jesus Christ has done for you. You recognize that you are not perfect, that God, does, that God is holy and he doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't look down at any of our sins and go, no big deal, everybody does it. Everybody does a lot of bad stuff. God is holy and therefore we are not right with God. And the only way Sinful people, unrighteous people like us can be reconciled to a holy God is if a God-man, a being who's both 100% God and 100% man can both represent God in his holiness and us and our unrighteousness in in himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And it allows God to remain holy and righteous and just and Forgive us sinners of our sins. It's the only way it could happen, and that's exactly what it ha- what Jesus is does that Jesus does for us in His life, in His death, in His, in his re- resurrection. How do you get a new heart? You see Christ on the cross doing what no one else has ever done for you. You see Christ on the cross taking your very punishment, taking your every sin and offering his righteousness to you. That's the only way to get a new heart. That's the only thing that will really change you from the inside. Will you believe it? Will you ask God to help you believe it? You can ask God even now to give you a new heart that would Worship Jesus because of the work that he's done for you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the story of Ezra. I thank you for the story of Jesus. I thank you for both of these realities. Teach us how to be successful, but also how to be saved, how to be changed. I pray that your spirit even now is moving on the hearts of your people, convicting them of their sin and convincing them that Jesus Christ did everything necessary to save them from their every sin and to reconcile them back to God, to bring them into the presence of God. I pray some people this morning would even experience that reconciliation. For all the Christians in this room, Lord, I pray that our appreciation for it would deepen, that there's nothing we can move beyond. We can never go too deep into it. It's like the ocean that just gets ever deeper. There's always new things to discover. And Lord, as 
we come and we participate in the blood of Christ with the Lord's Supper this morning, I pray that you would give us faith to believe and to appreciate the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Would you minister to us during this supper? Would you give us grace during this supper? Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. Just like that bread, Jesus' body would be broken later and his blood would be poured out. He took the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Poured out for the remission of our sins. That Jesus' blood dripped down that old rugged cross and that blood paid for our salvation. And now we get to sit down and we get to participate in that this morning. Something powerful going on here. There's something spiritual going on here. Jesus is meeting us here. We believe it. Would you give us grace that we need to persevere in the week ahead, Lord? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.